0: Well, hello and welcome to the lockdown edition of Formation at Edge Kingsland. For those of you who normally meet in person for our Formation gatherings, uh, well, we wanted to m- make something available to you and continue our journey, even if we can't physically meet in the same space. So here we are in the podcast world. Uh, and if you aren't a Formation regular, but you are listening along somehow, then you're more than welcome. Hello. Um Alright, so a couple of things to say, Uh, given the quantity of news that is likely in your lives, I think at the moment, uh, as you navigate the implications of COVID-19 and the lockdown life and so on, and all of the complexities that come with that and the challenges and so on, uh, I want to really, I guess, move into jumping straight into our content for this session um, and not spend too much time there. But needless to say, I am thinking of you and I hope you're all doing okay, taking care of each other. And um, and although sometimes it can seem, I guess, like everything pales in comparison to this very unusual experience in turn of events, and very tragic in many parts of the world at the moment, I think, um, I think that as we struggle to come to terms with our, perhaps with our vulnerability, with our restriction, uh, the loss of certain freedoms, with feeling perhaps out of control for some people, um, it seems to me that maybe now more than ever we should be talking about life and spirituality and what it means to be human and some ways to make sense of our lives and our ideas about God and ourselves and the world we live in. Um, And at least one aspect of what it means to be human, we could say, is to seek and to live life with meaning. That certainly seems to be central to so much of the human experience. And, uh, and, And as far as we know, of course, this is an assumption on our part, I guess, but we are the only species that we know of that has the kind of self-reflective, self-aware consciousness that we possess to reflect on meaning. So what's come with this is this desire to know what it means to be us, what we're a part of, why all this matters, and so on. Uh, And I guess in many respects we could suggest that meaning is grounded in story, Um, the story by which we make sense of ourselves and the world around us. And I don't mean just one... Seamless, easy to tell story, but essentially we narrate our own lives and we narrate uh, the story of the world. We we give it a sense of story. And uh, if I want to reflect on my own life and what it means to be me, I reflect on my story. Sometimes consciously and often unconsciously, it's just sitting in the background there. Uh, the way I've grown up, the culture I'm in, the family, the religious environment, the societal messages that I hear and am exposed to all of the time. All of this is shaping and forming my awareness of the kind of story that I'm living in and then, of course, the kind of meaning that comes from it. And uh, and what I think religion does for us at its best is offer us at its best, offer us insight, knowledge, and a way of seeing ourselves, one another, uh, reality itself within the context of a wider and deeper sense of meaning that is that can be personal, really deeply personal, but is also brighter, broader and wider in its, in its scope than that too. At its worst, perhaps religion can kind of just boil things down to being about getting your kind of religious choices right, so that when you die, you're in the right camp, perhaps getting your beliefs in order. And then your life story is simply really about making sure you stay in the right camp, convincing others to be in your camp too, and try and get as many people on that kind of ticket as possible. Uh, whether you're hoping to get to heaven or to get reincarnated into a better life in the future or whatever it might be. Um, so my suggestion in, in this session is that um, Christianity, when it's understood like that, is, is, is it mo- it's it's shallow. <laughs> it's at its most boring when it's understood like that. Um, and instead, I think understood at its best, it offers us deep insights into the questions of meaning. It, it, it gives us uh, a conversation about what story shapes our sense of what it means to be us, if there's a God. And if so, what is that God like about, what, And why does that matter, and what does it mean to be human in the context of all of that? And um, and one ways into the story that has shaped Christian thinking for a long time now is the story of the biblical text, the Bible, the scriptures, whatever language you like to wrap around that. And uh, And it's this big, long, sweeping, epic narrative, I guess, that covers hundreds, if not thousands of years, And the claim of the Christian tradition over time has been, in one way or another, that this story is a story that matters. Some would even say it's the story that matters. Um, But, of course, it depends how you read the story, too, right? Um, And that's what I want to talk a little bit about over these next couple of sessions. So this is the first in a two-part series. Uh, So uh, make sure you listen to both of them to get the full story. So, of course, we can be tempted, and uh, and many Christians, I think, um, have been tempted to read this story as simply kind of a how to get to heaven when you die kind of story. Um, But as I've already said, I think it's it's a boring way to read the Bible, and I actually think it's a mistaken way to read it. And so instead, over the next couple of sessions, we're going to tackle the story, maybe from some different angles, and see if we can get a handle on how it might offer us some insight into a conversation about God and meaning and wisdom and what it means to be human and why that all still matters for us so deeply. So the topic for today is titled Slaves, Gods, Empires and Prophets. And, uh, and so we're going to be talking about the Old Testament. And then in the next session, we're going to be talking more about the what is called the New Testament. the, the New, I, I think I may have said New Testament, uh, but I meant New, New Testament, the one with Jesus in it. Uh, the Jesus part of the story and how that all fits in. So, um, part of the challenge when we come to read the Bible, there's many challenges perhaps for some of us, is that sometimes when we say, you know, well, what is the story of the Bible, the temptation is to turn the Bible into one big, nice, story, as if it all fits kind of neatly together and and, and was almost written all at once. You know, like it, it was this one big epic that just sort of floated down and came to us and that everybody at every point of the story knows exactly what's going on and, and believes all of the same things. But of course, that's not the case. It's written by many different human authors over long periods of time. And so one of the challenges that comes with that is that actually not all of the authors agree with each other about everything. Uh, In fact, some really strongly disagree with one another about some quite key and critical things. And for us modern Western people, that can be a bit disconcerting. Um, Now, it's not actually a problem. I think it's quite important. But for some people, it feels like a problem. And perhaps that's because our modern Western mind thinks that surely if something's going to be a sacred text, then it all has to be neat and tidy and be wrapped up beautifully for us and seamless and perfect. we like things neat and tidy and to make sense in nice little boxes but the bible is not close to being neat and tidy um and so i I think that's kind of that can be discombobulating for us uh, but also a lot of fun i think if we if we allow ourselves to dive into that diversity and and um curiosity so to start off with i say that i've probably said that three times already but uh, i want to approach the story of the old testament maybe with a bit of wider context um, and then we'll, we'll dive into some specific aspects. of it. Obviously, in a short session like this, we're not going to be able to cover every aspect of the Old Testament, but, um, but I want to at least dip our toes into some little bits of the story. If we, if we go back in time, come back with me now, about 2,600 years ago, around 600 BC, we're in the middle of what we usually refer to as the Ancient Near East. Um, now this is now, well, a couple of things to say here. One is the oldest part of the old Testament writing. So that, so the most ancient bits of the old Testament that we have are about another 600 years prior to that, about 1200 BC. But the old Testament as we currently have it, or close to as we currently have it, um, is largely put together in 600 BC. So, uh, it's kind of, it's collected and edited and, and so on. So so there's this kind of 600-year span of time over which these writings are, uh, are written by a whole bunch of different people. And then at about 600 BC, collected into roughly the form that we have it now. All right, so let's put that aside just for now and and think about the ancient Near East itself. Now, the ancient Near East, in many respects, is like, it's kind of like the origin story uh, for human civilization. It's, um, it's not the only place that humans were at this time. But much of what we know of kind of humanity now finds its beginnings here. So it's here where we see agriculture emerge, which is a big advancement for human beings and enables them to form societies and and so on. And that's a big shift in terms of human experience. Uh, we have the invention of the wheel we and then, and then emerging out of this, we have governments and nations and and so all of this is kind of related to these early ancient civilizations in an area we call the ancient Near East. It's pretty similar to what we now know as the Middle East, roughly. So, but we go through the top of Africa, through you know, Egypt, into Israel, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, and uh, the bottom of Europe. there. And so uh, these ancient civilizations emerge at this time. And we find this swirling sea of of empires rising and falling, of kingdoms emerging and disappearing, of wars and battles and conquests and the establishment of laws and the building of whole, you know, legions of of slaves and the developing of really distinctive religious traditions and ideas about the gods and so on. So one of the ways in particular to touch on that, that humans have made sense of their reality and did so at this time as well, is through gods and divinities of some kind. You know, so we ask the question well, where does life come from? Where does the rain come from? Why do we sometimes seem to experience drought and sometimes we've got plenty of water? Uh, why, to, why do sometimes we seem to have so much lack and things are so hard and then other times we experience plenty? Why do things go well or not well? Well, there must be a whole sort of range of unseen forces that are driving our reality. You know, the gods um, and different regions and traditions had different gods um, and with those different gods came different what we call cultic practices which is really the whole practices of of worship and the sacrificial rituals and the way to keep the gods satisfied or happy because if there are these divinities who are kind of behind the scenes then you want to make them as happy as possible with you so that things will go better for you if that's the way things work and so whether it was through the offerings of grains and animals or blood sacrifices or attacking your enemies to sort of prove your faithfulness to god or maybe even in in the worst cases sacrificing children and stuff like that all these ways to show devotion to the gods to help you negotiate your way through this world of divinities so that life might go as well as possible for you and so when especially when you went to war it wasn't just between your army and that of your enemy it was also between your gods and if your god was powerful and or if you'd kept your god happy then hopefully you'd do well of course if you lost the battle then um, at least a couple of possibilities one is your god's not very good Uh, in which case sometimes you'd then switch allegiances and find a a different god or you'd realize you hadn't been keeping your god happy and so you could live in this kind of constant state of anxiety really about trying to keep those gods happy so that you'd stay safe and provided for and so on Uh, and so there's in all of this, you know, lots of questions about what it means to navigate life. You need priests and religious guides to help you navigate this world and to figure out how to relate to the unseen forces of the gods. That they're not always easy to discern because the gods are unseen. Um, and so, so this is human beings, and this is the ancient Near East, and this is the cradle of human civilization—a whole mishmash of empires rising and falling, and religions, religions themselves rising and falling, and merging and coming apart and joining back together again, and so on. And into this context, we find this story, this ancient story of the nation of Israel, uh, which we see collected in the Old Testament. And it's one of the nations in the ancient Near East, um, but it was peculiar for a number of reasons. Um, Before we get to the peculiarities, let's sort of think about the story of Israel more specifically. So if we were going to try and, let's say I was going to try and summarize the story of the Old Testament for you very briefly and very badly, then I might have do it like, and I wanted to put it into a neat and tidy package. Perhaps I'd say something like this. God created the world good and beautiful, and then humans messed it up. And so God, and, and that, and God was pretty annoyed about that. Uh, and, um and tried to reboot things a couple of times and things were a bit of a miserable failure and people turned out to be uh, rotten scumbags. And so God uh, chooses a guy called Abraham and says, I'll start with you and I'll, I'll, you know your descendants will be my people, and uh, they'll be my chosen people. Now this, you know, so Abraham's descendants start to grow, but then they become slaves in Egypt. So eventually, God through Moses rescues them, and he and they make this agreement together that he's going to be their God, and they're going to be his people. And if they follow all the things that he says and all of his laws, then he'll look after them, and they'll be okay. Uh, but if they don't, then things won't be okay. And so they enter into this this promiseless land that God has promised for them, uh, which does involve wiping out their enemies in a rather ruthless fashion, and then staying in their new land and then continuing to fight with their enemies for many centuries to come. Um, but establishing, especially under someone like David, a, a powerful kingdom, at least for a time. So, um, so they've kind of moved from Abraham to a large family who then become slaves, who then get rescued, then they are God's special people uh, in this agreement, this covenant with God, uh, and then end up becoming a kingdom under um, Saul and then under David and Solomon. And things are going kind of well at this time, but then you you sort of have a descending uh, story into a bunch of rogue kings who don't obey God properly. And in the end, they all end up getting defeated and Jerusalem's destroyed and they end up in exile um, because they weren't faithful to God and they didn't do what God had said. And that's kind of where the Old Testament finishes, with them kind of returning, limping back to Jerusalem at the end, trying to make the best of a bad lot, and uh, and looking forward to a time when things might change. That's kind of that's a that's a broad sweep of the Old Testament story from one perspective. Now, <laughs> of course, when we read of ancient Israel in the Old Testament, that in reality the challenges that we're reading, as I said earlier, a collection of writings from different authors. Sometimes individual authors, sometimes communities, sometimes oral traditions that have been handed down, sometimes um, diverse oral traditions about the same events, uh, different written traditions, different prophets, all collected together into one big long collection of writings exploring different aspects of the story from different perspectives. And So I actually don't think it helps us to try and do what I just did before, which is to put it into one seamless story that all fits together kind of nicely. Because that's not really the way... This text kind of worked for ancient Israel, and I don't think it's the way it's supposed to work for us either. Now, the reason we even have the text in the form that we do is because of what I mentioned earlier, which is when things go badly for the ancient Hebrew people, uh, they do end up in exile. Now, Israel itself was a pretty small nation in the ancient Near East. It was made up of 12, 12 tribes. And uh, and the kingdom had kind of split into two and Judah had split away from the rest. And in the end, 11 of the 12 tribes have been pretty much decimated and all that's left is Judah holding on to Jerusalem. And in the end, because they also, you know, as the story goes, kind of don't obey God or whatever, they, um, they end up being destroyed by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. And um, this is around 600 BC. And so Jerusalem is destroyed, the tribe of Judah is scattered or... Uh, Many of them taken into exile, mostly in Babylon, but also into other parts of the surrounding nations. And um, it's really at this time when they're in exile, when the Jewish people recognize the need to make some sense of their own story in more comprehensive terms. So they've got all of these different bits of writing and oral traditions and so on. But they really want to collect that all together to try and make some sense of how they've ended up in the mess that they're in and how to think about themselves and their identity now that they're kind of lost Everything And that's that's often what happens for us. It's often actually when we hit tragedy or crisis that we stop and pause and start to think about our lives and our stories and how we got here uh, and maybe what we could have done differently or where things are going to go from here. And that's essentially what's happening for them at this time. And so they go to their traditions. They collect together these various pieces of writing that have been important to them as a people. But some parts of the story they write at this time. Some parts they rewrite. Some they edit. Some they just collect together, you know. So even at the very beginning in Genesis, there's two different oral traditions uh, put side by side. Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2 and 3. Um, things happen in different orders in the two different accounts. Uh, but to them, that's not important. Um, what's important is that this rich tradition and history is preserved in the insights that are found within it. And so this is all what leads to, to, to what we now know as the Old Testament. And so I think it's quite beautiful, actually, that they don't tell a seamless story. They don't see their purpose as giving only one way of seeing things, whether that be about what they believe about God or their enemies or their own kingdom. So there's this diversity of the story that is preserved. Okay, so what do I want to say about the story itself? Overall, what I want to suggest is this, that there are lots of ways in which the story of ancient Israel their version of life and of God and of what we should be doing is actually not all that different from other Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern nations. So there's lots of parts of the story that are similar in um, worldview and perspective to the nations that are around them. But there are also these important differences that keep popping up that to me make the story very intriguing still and it's in these differences that I think we find some really important and meaningful ideas, actually. And, and then as a Christian, um, some ideas that, that really connect into what we see emerge later on in the story of Jesus, which is in the next session. So you'll have to wait for that. So uh, let me pick out a few aspects of this. Firstly, they understand their own history, as I mentioned before, as one of escaping from oppression. So it's their deliverance from slavery in Egypt uh, and it's in this journey of what's called the Exodus, you know, where Moses turns up and liberate, and on behalf of God acts as God's agent to rescue them from oppression and enslavement in Egypt. And it's in this story that they really become a nation. So this is how they tell their origin story. Genesis, in many respects, is a prequel. Exodus is the main event in terms of the origin story of Israel. Um, and and so this, their origin story are slaves who are liberated. And and this is interesting because the way they see God in this part of the story is as a God who isn't on the side of the powerful, but is on the side of slaves. Now that might sound kind of obvious to you because if you've read the story, you're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. But in the ancient world, this is a it's a radical idea and it's also a bit of a nonsense. To say that God is on the side of slaves and the oppressed rather than Kings and powerful nations And armies this is a it, it makes them at times The subject of ridicule but I think It's there's something beautifully profound And subversive about that Idea now it does get lost Quite often later on and as Their story unfolds But some of the prophets you'll notice if you ever Read them um, keep bringing Them back to that story and so what the prophets Will often do is say hey remember um, Remember how you were slaves who Got liberated so maybe stop Um, treating people the way that you are. Stop abusing the poor. Stop enslaving other people um, because that's not the kind of story you're supposed to be living out. So it's not just about who they are. It's also about the kind of God they're talking about here. The story is centered around a God for the oppressed. And as I say, no one thought that was a reasonable idea (laughs) in the ancient world except for uh, this weird group of Hebrews. Hebrews. Now, the God who the Hebrews follow is known as Yahweh. And um, that name doesn't enter really the story until Moses is where it's in that Exodus story is where that name is kind of revealed. Um, when we kind of step back from the narrative itself and look at what we know of history and even uh, diving into different aspects of the text, we do find that at times ancient Israel and probably early on Yahweh is thought of as, as just one of the gods their God, the God who has rescued them and who they are now to be faithful to. But over time in the course of their nation, they come to think of Yahweh as in fact the most powerful of all gods. Uh, And then over more time, they come to think of Yahweh in fact as the only God. And when they come to this conclusion, this is another radical idea in the ancient world. Uh, It's what we now call monotheism, belief in one God, but it's a, pretty, it's a pretty late development, actually, in the story. Um, maybe they've only really come to it in the exile itself. Um, now, the fact that there's only one God, from one perspective, might seem like an arrogant claim or a divisive one. To us, perhaps, that seems divisive. But in fact, in their time and day, what was divisive was everybody having their own gods who were always fighting and causing war with one another the invitation to consider that perhaps there is one God beneath all things and before all things, uh, and that this God is on the side of slaves and the oppressed rather than the empires and their kingdoms. Well, that's, that's something worth paying attention to. Now, all through the story, if we kind of step back from it, that you can see the nation of Israel and different people telling the story, trying to make sense of who God is and what God is like. And, what's really important to grasp when we read something like the Old Testament is that they don't all have the same idea of God in their heads. Um, They're all writing from and living in different times and different places with different perspectives. And they're all trying to make sense of what they think about God. And so there's lots of different ways of trying to describe this divine reality. Um, And so some of them see like, to see God as a warrior, you know, so the, the one who crushes our enemies for us. And you'll find a bunch of those stories. And this is a pretty understandable way of thinking about God in the ancient world. This is the way that everyone thought about gods in the ancient world. They, everyone would tell accounts of the way their gods led them to victory in battle. And so Israel did the same. They told accounts of how their God helped them to wipe out all of their enemies. Some of the some of the stories uh like to see God as one who promises to protect them as long as they are obedient to all the laws they've given. So not just a warrior, but also the kind of the you do this and I'll do that. The um in in Deuteronomy, in particular in the Torah, there's this list of like blessings and cursings. If you obey me, then you will be blessed, and if you don't obey me, then things will go badly for you. Now it's worth noting that again, this is put together in the form that we have it much later on when things have gone badly for them. So, this is another way of them trying to make sense of their own story. Um, the implication, of course, of this is that anytime anything goes wrong, well it must be that we've somehow disobeyed or God has upset at us for some reason. Um, in relation to that kind of thing, s- some of the writings like to see God or prefer to see God as the one who sort of demands or needs sacrifices to keep this God satisfied and happy with us. Uh, in other places, uh, the authors like to see the kings as responsible to be sort of divine representatives. The king is divinely chosen, and we all follow the king wherever the king goes. Now, a lot of this kind of stuff, the the god is a warrior, the god who you know, you've know got to obey or things will go badly for you, the god who needs sacrifices, uh, the god who is represented by the king. This is all pretty standard ancient Near Eastern stuff, actually. Uh, this is pretty reflective of the world that they live in, and we should un- we should expect that because we're reading stories written by people in their time and place. But again, what's super intriguing to me is that there are some curveballs in the story that they include that keep sort of undermining or offering different points of view to these more kind of standard perspectives that we run into. And, uh, and that's really interesting to pay attention to, especially in connection with uh, the Jesus story that comes later on. Okay, so I want to highlight a few of those before we finish. Uh, Firstly, the gods in the ancient world were often believed to live or to dwell in certain regions and to inhabit certain spaces. Uh, And often, not always, but often it would be above, so it would be above the clouds or in the mountains or something like that, or soaring upon the winds or riding on the storm. Um, Sometimes ancient Israel liked to talk about Yahweh like this. Uh, And so you have this kind of, ancient divinity who who rides on the storm or who when you look up to the mountains um their god resides on top of the mountain so this is this is again kind of standard ancient world um pictures and yet at other times in the old testament tradition Talk about God as the source of breath and life in all living things, and as the one whose name should not be said out loud and can only be understood through a thousand different metaphors. And at, at times, so so at times it seems like Yahweh is almost just like another ancient deity. And then at other times, they seem to suggest that in fact the true insight is that there is this one divine reality that upholds and underpins everything and everyone. As I've already said, that's kind of a radical idea. So that's one little curiosity to note in this story the second I've already uh, I've mentioned as well which is the idea of having a king which is um, which everybody had and it's celebrated in many of the texts especially in relation to David David is seen as kind of the archetypal king the best king of all the the, the the king we all want to be and they talk longingly after David of a king like David returning to the throne a warrior a strong leader someone who will help them crush their enemies and establish strength and respect and a great kingdom. So you have this, uh, what we might call the imperial trajectory of the story, the kind of the story of kings and and, and the rise of the kingship as this kind of powerful and, and important thing. But at the same time, when they collect their story together, they also want to include all the awkward bits, actually, about how Yahweh, their god, doesn't want them to have a king in the first place. Because the king will actually enslave them again. They'll have to pay taxes and their sons will be taken for the king's army and the king will use all of your resources to build his own palaces and fund his pet projects. And um, and so the, the original sort of, um, or the, 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 the dissent that is kept in the text is that in fact, even though everybody else does life this way, you don't have to do it that way, even though every nation around you functions like this, you don't have to function like that in fact, Yahweh says I don't want you to, there's all sorts of problems with functioning like that especially in the way that it causes you to treat one another, and so you have this kind of standard way of things which is also, on one level of the story is kind of just assumed, but then you have this dissenting voice underneath saying it doesn't have to be this way Um, And so often the prophets pipe up in the king's courts to critique the king and to remind the king, hey, there's a different way to be that doesn't involve oppressing the poor and the downtrodden and using and abusing your authority all of the time. Um, So we have um, kingship, but we also have this suggestion that kingship itself doesn't have to be the way things are, that oppression doesn't have to be the way things are. Now, again, related to kingship, um, although not only to kingship, much of the Old Testament sides with the point of view that God wants to help Israel defeat and kill all of their enemies. And it's probably the, the majority view a lot of the time, right? Uh, in the ancient world, that's the way we all see reality. Even the prophets can get pretty stuck into this one at, time, uh, this, at, at times when they really want God to lash out at all of their enemies. So you have this kind of general mentality that that God is on our side, and God wants us to destroy our enemies, and God will help us to destroy our enemies. But there are also little moments in the story that pop up and say, no, maybe maybe not. Maybe that's not the only way to understand things. Maybe that's not the only way to see God, and maybe that's not the only way to see your enemies. And um, even in Joshua, in the sort of the most violent of all books, where there's a lot of enemy vanquishing are supposedly sort of on God's side heading off to battle to wipe out their enemies, the enemies that God has told them to wipe out when it seems like someone who's a divine representative if not God himself uh, appears and meets and says, "Look I'm on nobody's side here um, And then the story kind of just picks up and, and carries on. <laughs> it's such a curious little inter- intervention to say maybe this maybe this is not the only way to see things. Uh, you also find something like the story of Jonah, which is this prophetic parable, or it's like a satirical fable, that um, that contrasts greatly with some of the contemporary prophets uh, written at the same time as something like Jonah. So, something like Nahum, for example, who says, who basically says Nineveh is is going to be absolutely wiped out and destroyed, um, and Jonah instead says, what if we developed empathy and compassion for even our worst enemies? And, you know, Jonah's a a story that doesn't come to pass or it doesn't come true. This is not what actually happens for Nineveh. In the end, it is kind of wiped out. But there's this interesting, um, just kind of curious, put your hand up in the story of Jonah to say, I know we're all railing and ranting against our enemies and we want them all to be killed and we want God to do it. But maybe, just maybe, God might be interested in a different kind of humanity than that. And um, even after the exile, even after uh, the Israelites head back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild, um, they still have this kind of ongoing wrestle, what do we do about our stance towards others? One lot of writings and instructions after they return back to Jerusalem say the foreigner should be welcomed. And then another lot of writing says, no, the foreigner should be kept out. They're still trying to figure out how do we relate to one another and to those who are different from us. Okay. So another another aspect, I hope you're tracking. Um, the old podcast doesn't have PowerPoint slides, does it? So you can't, you can't see my bullet points. But boy, I tell you what impressive bullet points they would have been. Um, okay, so we've just dealt with uh, a few different aspects of the story. A couple more to touch on. Um, Much of the Old Testament views, as I mentioned, sacrifice as essential to keeping God satisfied and happy. Um, But there are prophetic voices who pop up and suggest that actually God doesn't really care about sacrifices at all. He'd much rather you were um, kind (laughs) and just to people. Jeremiah even goes further than just saying, hey, look, I don't really care about your sacrifices anymore. Jeremiah says, actually, God God never told you to offer sacrifices. And um and, and Jeremiah as a prophet just straight up critiques the Torah and offers a different version of events and says no I think God's different to that. And again the diversity is maintained in the story. It's beautiful. Um Okay, last point, much of the Old Testament views the human experience as i I mentioned already through a kind of you do this and god will do that kind of mentality obey god and thrive disobey god and be cursed and even a lot of the wisdom literature embraces this you know the stories and the psalms and the proverbs are filled with testimonies of those who are faithful to god being looked after and those that are not faithful who keep running into trouble and getting destroyed and yet again some of the texts also challenge this idea Job, for example, is a text, and it's probably the oldest text that we actually have in the whole Bible, um, the most ancient of all the, the written texts that we have. And, and it kind of, you're not meant to take it too literally in terms of, you know, it's got this kind of role-playing of an accuser coming before God and and this, having this conversation about um, about Job. Essentially, the book of Job is, is, is doing this. It says... Well, yeah, look, all of our wisdom and our proverbs and our wonderful stories tell us that um, if you do the right things, life will go well for you. But sometimes terrible things happen to people who have done everything right, and what do we do then? That's essentially the kind of question the book of Job is trying to wrestle with. We see a similar sentiment even in something like Ecclesiastes, where the writer ends up thinking everything is kind of meaningless and it doesn't matter what you do, just it all seems to turn out the same anyway. Rain falls on the just and the unjust, the author says. Um, And that's not to leave us in a place of despair, but it's to leave us with uh, a pushback against this kind of more simplistic idea that you do A and God will do B all the time and it always works out. Okay, so that's a lot of stuff all at once, but why do I say all of this and what does it kind of have to do with us? Well... Like ancient Israel, we still find ourselves living in a world with lots of different ideas about God, lots of different ideas about humanness and what's going on in the world. And, uh, and rather than just picking up the Bible and sort of going, right, I'm going to turn to page 72 where I can find the three answers that I need, uh, instead we're invited into this very long, very old conversation about the same things that we wrestle with now, even if they're in a different time and place and context we're still asking the question, man, if I'm if I'm good, does that mean things will go well for me? Um, what is God like? Is God uh, angry or kind, violent or, or loving and merciful? Uh, does life really mean anything? Does it hold meaning for me? These questions that we still wrestle with are not unique to us, but they're part of this long journey of humanity. And what the biblical text is doing is inviting us to join in this conversation that's been going on, rather than having to suddenly start the conversation from scratch i think sometimes in our contemporary world our desperation to see ourselves as more advanced and superior means we've tossed out a lot of the the wisdom and resource and tradition that sits in our history and so what the bible is doing is inviting us uh, to find language to find metaphor to find participation in a conversation and to enter into the wrestling and the engaging and to say, okay, I'm going to dive in and say, yes, what is God like? Yes, is that assumption I have about God uh, true or not? And Where does it come from? How do I engage in the story? How can I see the mistakes some of these characters in the stories made? Oh, how can I see the way that they used God to justify their own violence against others? Oh, how can I see the way that they always had God on their side and not on the side of their enemies? How can I see the way these things play out in these old stories? Because actually they continue to play out for me now. And then as a Christian then, how does the story of Jesus enter into this unfolding narrative and become this transformational kind of change moment in the story that gives us new insight into what we might want to say about God and God's way of being in the world. So that is where we're going to pick up from next time. Uh, I hope you tune in for the next session. I hope that's made some sense for you. I know there's a lot of information I've just been throwing at you there. And so you might want to go back and listen again. Imagine that. Um, I hope hope it's been all right for you. And uh, hopefully one day soon we'll all get to see each other in person again. Uh, But until then, tune in for the next session of the Formation Podcast live from lockdown.